Welcome to From the Frontline. Tonight we'll be discussing the blood of Christ. And is there anything more important in the life of a Christian than the blood of Christ? Or really, it's more a synonym for the gospel. And with me in the studio is Dr. Hammond to discuss this important topic tonight as we enter the Easter season and look forward to Good Friday. Uh, good evening, Dr. Hammond. Thank you for being here. Yes, well, I am always regarding... Easter as uh, my spiritual birthday, and 45 years ago in 1977, I was converted by a message on effectively the blood of Christ because the preacher, Rex Matthew, gave a message where he spoke about Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf visiting an art museum in Dusseldorf, which had a very uh, powerful portrait. It had a portrait uh, called Behold the Man, hmm. uh, and it had a portrait of the crucifixion of Christ, and underneath the painting was an inscription, I did this for thee. What hast thou done for me? Hmm. And that was the real message that actually brought me to Christ uh, 45 years ago. And Rex Matthews said, Count Nicholas von Zinsendorf admitted, I had loved him for a long time, but I never actually done anything for him. But from now on, I'll do what he leads me to do. And as he looked at the portrait of the suffering Savior, the crown of thorns, and the, the blood coming down, uh, he was struck and he looked. Well, Nicholas von Zinterdorf went on to found a spiritual community on his property, Heronhut, which became a dynamic community which experienced spiritual revival, launched a continuous prayer chain that for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, for 150 years, they kept mm. a prayer chain going. Obviously, multiple generations involved. But during that time, Hedenhut, that community of brethren, sent out 2,500 Moravian missionaries worldwide, mm. including to Greenland's icy mountains and to Ceylon and to the Cape, to Helen, wow. uh, to Hanardendal, uh, which is the oldest mission station in the Southern Hemisphere. Hmm. Well, he then also gave the story. This is all that, that, that first sermon I heard on the 3rd of April, 1977, that Francis Ridley Havergal, the British musician and devotional writer, visited the same art museum in Dusseldorf, and while gazing upon the same picture of Christ, was struck by the caption, I did this for thee, what hast thou done for me? And Francis Havergal wrote some lines of poetry, which she wasn't satisfied. She tossed that paper into the fire, but the pages fell out and touched. And months later, she showed them to her father, encouraged her to preserve them. And he even wrote a melody to accompany her words, which resulted in him, I gave my life for thee, which was first published 1860, mm. launched Francis Ridley Havergal as a serious composer of hymns. And maybe you remember these words of the hymn. This is what she first threw in the fire. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou might ransomed be and quickened from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee, what hast thou given for me? Hmm. And this was read out in Night House Converted. And it's also, it's also noted that Francis Havergal went on to compose classic hymns like Light a River Glorious. Who is on the Lord's side? I'm trusting thee, Lord Jesus, and take my life and let it be. In fact, we ended that uh, the, that service with the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, which I walked forward and surrendered my life to Christ on that basis. It was a matter of having a picture of the cross and the shed blood of Christ was key in my conversion and many other people's. Hmm. And that's so <clears throat> different than how many people think of the cross today, of really 
what is God calling you to now in response to the cross? Yes, God forgives your sin. He's covering over your sin, but now there's a call. I mean, even as Jesus in the Gospels, he says, I'm going to lay my life down. On the third day, I'll be killed, sorry, I'll be killed, and then on the third day, I'll rise again from the dead. Right after that, in every one of the Gospels, uh, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Sorry, I should say every one of the synoptic Gospels, mm-hmm. he tells his disciples to take up their cross and follow me. Um, and so I think there's often, it's sort of, we look at the cross cheaply today. It's, it's a thing you hang on the wall in your church or you have a piece of jewelry around your neck. But do you really think about that call of what is God calling you to do in response to the gospel, to the shed blood of Christ in your life? Well, Raymond Lowell, who is a great missionary to Muslims, in fact, one of the first dedicated missionaries to Muslims, Raymond Lowell, born in 1132 to a wealthy family off the coast of Spain, His early life was spent in debauchery and he said utter immorality, yet he was recognized by his peers in Spain as a man of brilliance and promise. But during his 30s, Raymond Lowell was born again as a result of a vision of the Savior hanging upon the cross, his blood trickling from his hands and feet and brow, looking reproachfully at him. And as a result, Raymond Lowell gave his life to Christ and devoted himself to ministry and became a missionary to Muslims and lived a full life, dying a martyr's death at age 80 while taking the gospel to Muslims. And it was his vision of the cross and of the blood of Christ that led him to take up the cross and shed his own blood in the service of the Savior and bringing Muslims to Christ. Hmm. That's amazing. And, <clears throat> yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting when we actually think about ministry among Muslims and atonement because they're actually still in their calendar, uh, one of their holidays, their Eids, they actually still sacrifice uh, sheep in remembrance of what Abraham did uh, when God called him to sacrifice his son. And yet there's not really an understanding of an atoning work of the shedding of blood. Although in some some communities, they actually start to see an atonement aspect. But I think that's more because of an overlap with the Christians who have been there witnessing to them. Um, but there's not, it's really just, oh, we, we shed the blood of the animal because that's what Abraham did in faith in response to God. But it's not a deep understanding of this blood actually covers over my sin. Uh, And so it's a much weaker view of atonement. Um, And when we talk to our Muslim friends and we speak about atonement, we really have to go back and lay another foundation. We have to look through the Old Testament and see, well, why is the shedding of blood necessary? Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Why, Why did God have to cover them with animal skins? They already had clothes. Do they need another set of clothes? No, it's because there was a need of the shedding of blood to cover for their sins. And you have this all throughout the Old Testament. In the Levitical law, it talks about, um, in Leviticus 17, verse 11, it says, For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Or as the author of Hebrews picks up, he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so, in... An Islamic context, they may not be thinking in terms of the same way of how we view God forgiving our sins in terms of we did the wrong thing. Now God needs to atone for our sins. There needs to be justice paid. They're thinking more in terms of honor and shame categories, which is quite interesting because in honor shame cultures, you can often do things like lie. And that's not necessarily wrong as long as it's sort of covering over the shame of your family or your people. <laughs> you can uh, even kill someone to restore the honor of your people. And there's an interesting analogy um, that 
have heard used when sharing the gospel with people from a Middle Eastern context. And this comes from a book called Stubborn Perseverance. And he says, in just this quote from this book, it says, I lived in the Middle East for a number of years and saw this truth of blood making atonement illustrated many times. If a family is shamed, there must be a shedding of blood to restore the family's honor. This is called honor killing. For example, if your sister had sex outside of marriage, she must be killed to restore the family's honor. If this is true when a person sins against another person, how much more serious when someone sins against God? And although we wouldn't say you should kill someone who's guilty of sexual immorality from your family to restore honor, but there is some overlap of that there must be the shedding of blood to atone for, to cover over sins. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. All the prophets actually made sacrifice for their sins because they too were sinners that needed atonement for their sins. Well, it's a redemptive analogy. It provides a stepping stone to present in the gospel. Mm. And all Muslims recognize that Abraham is the father of the faithful. And they look to Abraham as their ancestor in the faith, just as Hebrews and Christians look to Abraham as Mm. father in the faith. But we can point to Abraham and say, now, Abraham who's actually called the friend of God in Mm. the Quran. Now, Abraham was was asked by God or commanded by God to surrender that which was most precious to him, his own son, Mm. his only legitimate son. And if the greatest way that Abraham could show his love for God was to be willing to sacrifice his own son, then what's the greatest way God could show his love to us? Is there anything that God has done in history to equal or surpass Hmm. the sacrificial love of Abraham? And while Muslims might want to argue with us, they won't forget the analogy because they they all know about Abraham, they all know about the sacrifice. Now, they might think it's Ishmael, although the Quran doesn't say, Hmm. but in their tradition, they've come to think that it was Ishmael he's offering. That doesn't matter. We don't need to argue over it, just Ishmael or Isaac. The important hmm. thing is that when John the Baptist saw Christ, he pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God who hmm. takes away the sins of the world. And Abraham said, God himself will provide a lamb. And hmm. God did provide a ram then, and he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world hmm. today. But when many people speak of, of blood, they don't really understand just how much is involved because 3,400 years ago, God said in Leviticus 17, 11, hmm. for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Hmm. And we read in the Bible of, <clears throat> I think the first reference to blood in the Bible is Genesis 4, 10 to 11. What have you done? God says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you're cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And Later in Leviticus says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your soul, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. And for many years, people would have um, maybe had a very simple view of what blood is, but Hmm. now we understand how complex blood is. Hmm. And um, I've been a blood uh, transfusion donor for many years, my mother being a nurse, required us to sort of line up and give our blood about every month. Uh, that was considered healthy and right, and, you know, you're, you're a bad person if you don't go and donate blood. And mm. before I knew it, I was also donating white cells now. Mm. What's white cells? Well, they important part of our blood system, and patients who've got leukemia can't produce white cells naturally, mm. so they need blood uh, donations through, through white cells. And I'd sit on some 
uh, up at UCT at the medical school uh, every couple of months and they'd siphon all the blood out of my body and in two and a half hours put it uh, back in progressively while spinning off the white cells. And hmm. I said, well, what about my need for white cells? I said, no, well, you've got a healthy body. You'll produce what's been donated uh, by the time you've walked out the door. You oh, know, wow. You, you know, it, it's, it's amazing what the body can do. So hmm. to try and explain it, any city requires well-organized delivery and defense systems. So hmm. if you think of your municipal area, if you live in a city, it requires supplies of water, food, and electricity. Now, these supplies are delivered through a complex infrastructure. Thousands of trucks come into the average city, down freeways and roads and side streets, delivering essential supplies to stores and homes. And there's other trucks who are removing refuse to allow the city to function effectively and thrive. Now, it's a biological fact that our bodies have a transportation system far more complex and complete than that of any metropolis you care to think of. You know, you can think of New York and you can think of London and Paris. Mm. Uh, our bodies are more complex than that. So uh, our body's transportation system cuts through every tissue and organ by means of a network of so many blood cells. I'm told we've got about 100,000 kilometers of blood vessels in our bodies. Mm. 100,000 kilometers, not wow. meters. I mean, meters would have been impressive. <laughs> every cell of your body is a hairbreadth from a blood capillary. Mm. And the heart of this vast system is the pump about the size of an apple. It has to pump thousands of liters of blood through its chambers every day, mm. sending blood to every part of your body. Now, this blood carries vital life-giving oxygen and nutrients to every cell in your body. And I'm informed that your body has approximately 25 trillion red blood cells. I mean, it sounds like the national debt, but uh, <laughs> 25 trillion red blood cells in your body, which are like a postal courier service carrying packages like oxygen that's needed by the cells in your body. So what you've got is a complex infrastructure and transportation system, and blood is at the heart of it. And uh, your blood is carrying oxygen to Every single cell in your body requires oxygen to remain alive. And if blood is cut off to any part of your body, it deprives that body of life, effectively. It needs oxygen. And if any part of your body is starved of oxygen, that part will die. So if your brain is deprived of oxygen, it'll cause a stroke. Hmm. And that part of the, body, of the brain dies. And if your heart is deprived of oxygen, like through a blockage in the artery, will cause a heart attack. So that's what kills a lot of people, heart attacks, strokes. Well, the blood cells, the red blood cells, are transporting all the essential nutrients and the life-giving oxygen, while the white blood cells in your body are defensive. And they are like billions of little panzer tanks protecting your body from infection mm. and disease. So there's five different types of these white blood cells, and each one's trained to go after a different enemy. And that's why uh, leukemia patients, for example, need white cell donations because they, they can't survive without that. And just one mm. drop of your blood can contain anything from 7,000 to 25,000 white blood cells. I mean, that should make your wow. head spin. And the number of them increases if your body's fighting an illness. So it works like a military calling up reserves in a time of war. So if you suddenly are having symptoms of illness, uh, your body's going to go into overdrive, producing vastly more white cells mm. to fight off that illness or that infection. And your body will multiply the number of white cells to fight infections and protect your health. I mean, assuming mm. everything goes right. Now, of course, AIDS, acquired mm. uh, immunization deficiency syndrome, is 
a breakdown of your white cells that's able to protect you from disease and infections. Mm. And, uh, but a healthy body has got all this working now. As far as our skeletal structure is concerned, our bones do double duty. Not only do they support our body keeping us upright and stopping us flopping over like jellyfish, but, <laughs> but the bones are hollow. And on the insides of these bones are marvelous little factories that are operating day and night, producing billions of these little red blood cells, which you can think of as like delivery trucks, and these white blood cells, which you can think of as like defensive tanks or armored cars. Mm. And so overseeing and coordinating your entire operation is the brain and the heart, which keeps the blood flowing. So when we read that passage in the Bible again, remember it's over three millenniums old, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Nobody could have understood Mm. How true that is until very recently, till science caught up mm. with what God's Word tells us. Mm. Yeah, and it's amazing to think about the fact that, yeah, our blood is what actually keeps us alive. But, I mean, in, in the Bible, it just talks about the shedding of blood and the atonement. But to actually understand how intricately God has actually designed and created this, that even before, <laughs> thousands of years before we'd even understand this, God just said, okay, let me just dumb it down for you. The life's in the blood. <laughs> That's a simple way. And it's a total fact. It is. Yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> so um, after the flood, God communicated a covenant with Noah and his descendants and all the animals too for perpetual generations. So Genesis 9, we read, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God hmm. has God made man. So Blood is super important, and uh, again, life is important, and life is valuable because we're not from goo to the zoo to you. We're not mud and molecules to monkeys to man. We're not mm. a cosmic accident. We're not just matter in motion. We made an image of God. And so shedding blood is serious, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, which is again repeated in Hebrews 9.22, which you read earlier. So it's absolutely vital that we understand the importance of blood, because then we understand, well, when we speak about the blood of Christ, we're not talking about some magic uh, gimmick. We're talking about the actual heart and soul of, of what make, keeps us alive, and it's at the core of the new covenant, and it's also at the core of the atonement. And therefore, when we speak of the blood of Christ or the cross, it's actually shorthand to understand the whole gospel message. Hmm. And as Peter talks in his first letter, um, his first epistle, he speaks of the blood of Christ. And to him, he uses it as a call to action. He says in 1 Peter 1, 16, it says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So he's calling them to holiness. He's calling them to live under the fear of the Lord, knowing that you are ransomed from your the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so he uses the blood of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, the propitiation of Christ as a motivation to say, live under the fear of the Lord. You shall be holy for he is holy. Uh, and he's reminding them, look, you're, you're living in light of God as your father, who's the one who judges impartially, live in a way that honors him. And so he uses it as a motivation. You didn't, you weren't ransomed with 
silver or gold. It wasn't this, these petty things, rather the blood of the very second member of the Trinity, the blood of Christ. Therefore, do something in response to this. Yes, indeed. So this again reminds us of Exodus 12, 13, the, the Passover. And as God said in Exodus 12, 13, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see that blood, I will pass over you. Mm. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So uh, the blood of the Passover lamb was for protection. And we read that Christ is our Passover lamb. And Zechariah 9, 11, we read, As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free. Hmm. And we see another magnificent prophecy of Christ, a messianic prophecy in Zechariah 13, 1. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. So this is a, uh, continually speaking about the blood. It's a synonym for the gospel. It hmm. is the blood of Christ that redeems us from all sin. So in Matthew 26, verse 28, as the Lord in the Last Supper says, but this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so when we have the Lord's Supper, it should be bringing back to our remembrance all these different pictures and analogies and scriptures on blood, right from the blood of the first animal slain to cover the sin of Adam and Eve through to the more noble sacrifice that was offered by Cain and the Passover lamb, and we think mm. of Abraham uh, offering up a son, but the angel stopping him and, and mm. saying, now I know you fear God, and God provides a ram. And all the way through, and you think of a scapegoat, and there's so many pictures throughout the Bible. And so when John the Baptist points and says, behold, the lamb of God, mm. who takes with the sin of the world, he's, of course, referring to the blood of the lamb. Mm. I think it's so interesting when you look at sort of these Old Testament themes all coming to their fruition in Christ. They had these themes of sacrifice, but also there's this other theme that runs parallel to it of Abraham to being told that he'll have a son and through your son, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So there's this theme of there's a coming one, an offspring of Abraham, then the offspring of David who will come, a Messiah who will come. But then this promised offspring and this sacrifice sort of come together in one. <laughs> it's like, wait, the, the son, the offspring is the lamb? <laughs> it's a strange sort of melding of the mm. two. And wow, now, now the promised Messiah, the one who's coming to deliver us, he's also going to be the sacrificial lamb who sheds his blood for us. I mean, no one could have been fully anticipating this, how the, the true deliverer would come and he himself would actually get up on the altar and shed his own blood to deliver his people. Right. So we've got to think of how Regularly through the Bible, Jesus referred to as the son of David. And as the son of David, we're comfortable with that term. He's destined to the throne. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And as David was Israel's greatest king, well, Jesus even greater. He is the king of kings. He's mm. the Lord of lords. But he's also called the son of Abraham. Mm. Now, as the son of Abraham, he's not destined to the throne as mm. the son of David, but destined to the altar, mm. the altar of the cross, sacrifice. So, we can think of Jesus as the Lamb of God hmm. or the Son of Abraham, who's the sacrifice, hmm. the altar. And we can think of Jesus as the, the Lion, hmm. the King of Kings, the Son of David. And so you've got to keep this balance that Jesus came as a Lamb the first time, but he'll come as a Lion the next time. Hmm. He came as a Savior the first time, he'll come as the Judge on the last day. You either bow to him as Savior today or you will be forced to bow to him as Eternal Judge then. 
And so this balance between understanding, yes, there's there's the wood of the cross, there's the wood of the cradle, mm. but there's also the gold of the crown. And and Jesus was born the cradle, but he was born to die. We think of the wood of the cradle pointing to the wood of the cross, but then there's the gold that symbolizes he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. So mm. uh, I think it's just so important to get this balance. And, and you get this wonderful picture in Revelation 5 the, where the song of the redeemed is given and the redeemed are singing to the Lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Mm. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him who sits on the throne to the Lamb forever and ever. And to read those verses and to hear it sung by Handel's Messiah, wow. This mm. is, but at the heart of it is the blood of the Lamb. Mm. Uh, this is, and I think, unfortunately, many people have got a, a bloodless gospel or they have got a smooth modern cross that's more like an ornament than an instrument of death and have missed so much of, of the key part of the gospel. One thinks of General William Booth, who found the Salvation Army, and towards the end of his life and ministry, towards the end of the 19th century, he made a prophecy about 20th century, which is quite uncanny. He said, the time may come when people will be preaching a Christianity without Christ, hmm. preaching Salvation without repentance, preaching on a a cross uh, about a savior without a cross and without blood, and where there will be politics without God, where there'll be forgiveness without repentance, and you just look at this warning, and in mm. many cases you can see what is missing from all too many mm. popular churches and mega church movements and, and so much on the televangelists, the blood is missing mm. and the cross is often missing and repentance is often missing mm. and the fear of God. And uh, the gospel is not come to Jesus and he'll fulfill all your desires and make you happy mm. and wealthy and healthy. And that's not the gospel yeah. because at the heart of it is the depravity of man, that we are sinners God is holy, we are sinners, and we need a blood atonement for our salvation. Mm. And sin is serious. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to suffer and die on the cross. And mm. if anyone uh, doesn't fully understand how much Christ suffered for us, well, no film can do it justice, but just try watching The Passion of the Christ mm. uninterrupted to get a bit of an idea. And, and that's only a bit on the physical. Yeah. Not actually the, the spiritual, spiritual I mean, yeah. was much worse. Mm. He, he became sin for us. And mm. When you understand what Christ does for us, then it shows our sin was serious, very mm. serious. Uh, otherwise, Christ wouldn't have had to suffer and die. Mm. And so those people who make light on sin or who sort of skip over God's holiness and make him big buddy, they're missing the seriousness of the gospel message. And so Good Friday, during this Easter weekend, during this Holy Week, should really get us somber and serious about my sin was the reason why Christ had to die. And and to get an you know, when we understand the importance of blood and we understand the importance of the blood of Christ in our salvation, it should really bring us to repentance and to recognize uh, this is a serious thing. This isn't just a matter for some superficial, popular mm. gospel message that uh, all too many seem to go for today. Mm. And as we've seen in <clears throat> these recent documentaries, such as 
um, the American gospel, how they've actually exposed the fact that many people today aren't preaching the atonement as scripture teaches it, or as historically the reformers taught it, of an atoning sacrifice that covers sin, that, that turns away the wrath of God. Rather, uh, they say that view of the atonement is cosmic child abuse. It's like God the Father is abusing, wanting to abuse us, his children, and Jesus steps in the way and he takes the beating for us. I mean, it's such a blasphemy that they even use that illustration because the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit predetermined to come and that Christ would die. Christ wasn't a, a an abuse victim. He willingly, along with one will with the Father and the Spirit, decided to come and die for our sins. So, I mean, it, it completely rips apart the Trinity and doesn't even take into account that. But, and there's the scriptures, God was in Christ, mm, reconciling the world to himself. Mm, and it's, it, so there's this view that, well, no, 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 rather the atonement's not about that. God taking, pouring out his wrath and Christ willingly taking the wrath of God for us. No, it's, it's just God showing his love for us. But that's, that's almost completely meaningless. It's like uh, someone standing next to train tracks and saying, uh, look how much I love you, then just throwing themselves in front of a train. I mean, and you sit back scratching your head, why, why did you do that? <laughs> that was really strange. Whereas if it's like the Bible says, the wrath of God is upon us, we're there on the train tracks, our foot is caught in the train tracks, we're incapable of getting out, and then he comes and sort of tackles us, pushes us out of the way, and he takes the he gets hit by the train instead of us. I mean, that actually shows more, I think, a biblical picture of him dying in our place. Um, not that we think a train track is a great illustration, but, I mean, thinking if God just loves us but we're not under the wrath of God, what was the point? And that's how much of the church views the atonement today. It's, no, 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 it's just about the love of God. But there is no love if there's no danger you're in. What What is, what's even the purpose of the atonement today? So what are some... Uh, applications we can take from this as we think about the atonement, the atoning work of Christ, the mm. blood of Christ, the gospel that uh, brings us to repentance. Well, we need atonement because sin is the breaking of the law of God and a broken law demands a penalty and the wage of sin is death. And even with inflation, the wage of sin is still death. Mm. And all <laughs> men have broken the law of God and all men are under the sentence of eternal death. And Christ died as our substitute in our place. He rendered complete obedience to the law of God, and he made full atonement for our sins. And so Colossians 1, 20 says, And to him, by him, to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having been made peace through the blood of his cross. And so the Puritan writer John Milton declared that the greatness and the sacredness of a person's soul is attested to by two facts. First, the creation of our soul is an image of the eternal God. And secondly, the price that's been paid for the redemption of our soul is the precious blood of Christ. So we belong to God, the creator and the redeemer. And Christ has redeemed us from the bondage and the slavery of sin. As you read from 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver gold from your aimless conduct, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot and redeemed from aimless conduct. Again, we, we are saved to serve. We are saved for reason and with purpose. And so uh, sinners alienated and separates us from God and through the blood of Christ, we are redeemed and we reconciled. And so even in our human relationships, wrongdoing produces separation, alienation, and the divorce courts are examples mm. of how evil does separate and alienate people who are once close. And if that's true between people, it's 
even more true between God and man. Hmm. Sin always alienates and separates us from the presence of God. And the key question that we should ask ourselves and anyone we want to talk to, how can a holy God allow sinful people like you and I into his heaven? How can man and God be reconciled? Well, the only answer is by the precious blood of Christ. Colossians 1.20, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having been made peace through the blood of his cross. So the blood of Christ justifies us from the guilt of sin, and it redeems us from the slavery of sin, and it reconciles us after the separation of sin, and it cleanses our consciences from the burden and the shame of sin. Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, mm. nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. Mm. And so when we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So, yes, to me, a very key thing is um, we can see it in so many different ways in, in, in life, uh, such as how you have a red cross on white to um, indicate the red cross and also in times of war. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of the Sherlock Holmes novels, wrote a book in the history of the Anglo-Boer War in which he tells it of a detachment of British soldiers who were overwhelmed by the Boers, falling back under heavy fire. Their wounded lay in a perilous position. They were facing certain death. And one of them, a corporal in the Salon Mounted Infantry, recalled that when they realized they had to come immediately under protection of a Red Cross, uh, but they did not have a flag and they didn't have paint. All they had was a piece of white cloth, which was made from somebody's undergarments, but they had no red paint. So they used their own blood from their own wounds to make a large red cross on that white cloth. And when the Boers saw the red cross on the white flag, the firing ceased. A truce was called. The Boers stood back. The British wounded were carried to safety. Just one case of how blood can save you. Hmm. But um, in this modern age... Many people are so postmodern and so unchristian in their out outlook that mm. C.S. Lewis, the great writer and professor from Cambridge University, wrote the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to try and communicate the gospel in an analogy. And Edmund had been enslaved by the white witch. He had been foolish. He had been rebellious. He had been evil. He had actually become a traitor to his own brother and sisters. So when the great lion Aslan came to rescue him, the wicked witch reminded him of the deep magic that was written on the stone table. Every traitor belonged to her, and she had the right to the blood of every sinner. Then, to the amazement of all, Aslan spoke privately to her, and she let Edmund go. And later that night, Aslan surrendered himself to the witch's camp, where they took him, shaved off his magnificent mane, ridiculed him, beat him, spat upon him, tied him to the stone table, and the witch sharpened a knife, drew near, plunged the knife into the lion's heart, killing Aslan. And from a distance, Lucy and Susan wept in grief. In the morning, they went to recover his body, but they found the stone table broken and the body of Aslan nowhere to be seen. Hmm. And turning around, they found him and found him larger than they'd ever seen him before. And he is shaking his magnificent mane. He is fully physically alive. Susan and Lucy hugged and kissed Aslan, weeping for joy and said, but Aslan, what does this mean? And Aslan replied, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, of which she did not know. 
Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in the traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Well, there's a, a novel hmm. presentation to try and help a secular world understand something of the spiritual significance in the gospel message, which unfortunately so much of our age has, has neglected. But in the Bible we read, especially in Isaiah 53, which is probably one of the greatest pastures to go to at this time as we approach the Easter season, Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the transgression of my people he was stricken, and the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So the Bible is clear. Christ is our Passover lamb. He is our sin offering. He is our atonement. And so when Christ, the perfect Son of God, a lamb without spot or blemish, shed his precious blood on the cross, it was a substitutionary death. He died for us in our place, the innocent for the guilty, the just in the place of the unjust. Mm. And so that's really the problem, is that we are unjust. We are sinners. We deserve the wrath of God for our sins. And so we have to have a greater view of God's holiness and a greater understanding, a deeper understanding of our true depravity before God. So the cross and I think the atonement really helps us see how great, how magnificent God is. Yes, although we were created in the image of God with glory and dignity, we're now plunged into depravity, into sin, and how, how depraved, how, how short we fall of the glory of God. So for those listening who don't know the Lord, this is certainly a call to turn to the Lord, to turn to Christ this season, that this isn't just, oh yeah, the blood of Christ, Jesus died. No, well, why did he die? For you because you deserve the wrath of God that only can be satisfied by you taking it for all eternity in hell, or Jesus comes and he stands in your place. So it's for those who don't know Christ, that's the message. And for those of us who do know Christ, it's go out there and warn the world, tell people how, how good God is. Not Don't just tell them Jesus died, Jesus died. The, the answer, we have the cure to cancer, we have the cure to cancer. Meanwhile, they don't know that they have cancer. <laughs> they need to know that they have the cancer of sin that's killing them and sending them to hell. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Mm -hmm. That's in 1 John 4 verse 10. Mm -hmm. And you think of the testimony of John Newton, who was once a slave trader. And John Newton, after his conversion, wrote the classic hymn, Amazing Grace. Well, he also wrote these words on his vision of the cross. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eye on me as near his cross I stood. And so there's a vision of the cross, and we've got to ask each one of our listeners, have you been to Calvary? Have you seen a vision of the cross? Mm. Absolutely. So that is the question to think about this Easter season as we approach Easter, as we approach Good Friday, is have you truly understood the work of Christ? Do you really 
know what it means that Christ died on the cross, not just in some ethereal sense. Yeah, he died. He died for you because what you did was so heinous, it actually caused a chasm between you and your God, eternally separated from your God, that unless Christ himself came and stood in that gap, you would be damned forever. And for those of us who have been saved, we ought to be in awe of, wow, God himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth, came down, condescended, became a man to die in my place. That shouldn't just, oh yeah, that's cool. That should <laughs> deeply break us and turn us to repentance and say, wow, God, if, if you've done this for me, what, what I should give everything for you. It's as I think it's David Livingston who said it. It's no sacrifice that I respond and give everything for Christ because he died and gave everything for me. Yes. Say rather, it's a privilege. Mm. So I think it's so important at this time to remind people the word holiday doesn't mean what many people think today. It comes from the word holy day. Mm. And holiday, unfortunately, many people now think, of, oh, it's holidays. I don't need to go to church. We can close our Bible study down during the holidays. And, mm. But, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, holy days were when people went to church, went to Bible study, did more uh, religious services than they would do normally. And so uh, may I suggest to our listeners who want to revive their devotional life that Go on a complete, total, utter fast of secular media for this long weekend, mm. which would be a good thing any time of the year anyway, but but particularly this, this season. And what we found particularly powerful in our family um, is listen to, if you can go to a presentation of Handel's Messiah, great, but if you can't, at least listen to, if you can find it on the web, uh, play Handel's Messiah. It's all scripture, and it's about three hours. Powerful. And it's pounding out so many of the scriptures we've, mentioned here, mm. which you will never forget. And we've had the privilege of my wife, Laura, and daughter, Daniela, many times have sung Handel's Messiah mm. at um, the oldest church in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, Protestant church, which is Strand Street Lutheran Church. At uh, Daniela's all sung in the Mutterkirk, the Dutch Form Church at Adley Street. Mm. And uh, Lenora's even sung at the Cape Town Inf uh, Cape Town Symphony Choir in St. George's Cathedral and uh, many other wonderful venues. This is such a great uh, classic, Handel's Messiah. If you want to know what heaven sounds like, well, I would bet this is pretty close. Mm. And uh, I don't know that we've got any better music on earth to compare with this right now. So Handel's Messiah, one of the greatest um, um, uh, concerts you could possibly go to. And if it's being performed at a local venue near you, support it. Uh, otherwise, uh, find it online and just outstanding. Another thing is, especially on Good Friday, can I suggest if anyone has not yet seen The Passion of Christ, watch it mm. quietly on your own and then go into the Gospels and read up and just see uh, with new eyes uh, from a serious attempt to try and give a realistic portrayal of what was involved in the crucifixion because I'm afraid most of our films of Life of Christ have sanitized and made it more acceptable to our sensibilities mm. by not going into what plainly the scriptures explain and what we know from history, how the Roman crucifixions went. So the passion of the Christ. Then there's also Ben-Hur. I'm talking mm. about the classic 1950s yeah, one, not, not the, the modern garbage, <laughs> which is so biblical. Yeah, but but the original, uh, the 1956 uh, one with, with um uh, or was it 58, 59, uh, with the Charlton Heston, which is the classic. Uh, Ben-Hur, the book, Ben-Hur, the uh, uh, also radio theater presentation, audio book. Um, if you want to 
get to the book or watch the film. But Ben-Hur is another good way of just focusing the family on on where all the problems in this in this uh, novel on on Ben-Hur are all resolved in and through the cross. Hmm. And it's such a powerful message, especially as the whole film and book is about the battle between statism and monotheism, between those who worship the state and those who worship the one true God, and uh, very relevant to today. Other great films that or media that could be helpful, there's a film that's come out called Risen. Hmm. Risen is a very powerful one on the given from the perspective of a secular Roman unbelieving centurion who's trying to find the body of Christ after crucifixion. Very powerful, well worth watching. There's also The Case for Christ. That's both mm. a book, it's a documentary, and it's also a dramatic film. The Case for Christ is a story of an unbelieving, skeptical journalist from Chicago who went on a mission to investigate all the evidence to try and disprove the resurrection, to win his wife back to atheism after his wife had become a religious fanatic. And so mm. this is just such a phenomenally powerful film. So can I recommend, let's just rather focus on that, which is going to deepen our appreciation of the truth of what's involved in the resurrection and the crucifixion and what Christ suffered for us on this um, Easter season. And Handel's Messiah, The Passion, Ben-Hur, Risen, Case for Christ, these could be some good tools, and I'm sure you can probably think of others. And then get back to the Gospels and read in each of the Gospels the account of the death of Christ and his resurrection, the trial of Christ and all that. Of course, support your church's activities that's going on in your area at the same time. But let's dedicate this weekend to make it not just a Good Friday, but a God Friday. Mm, absolutely. And to think deeply about the fact that Christ died for us, are you living for him? As that was the call that you heard when you responded to the gospel of Dr. Hammond as well. And we ought to think about that. What is God calling you to do in response to what Christ has done for you? Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We do hope this has given you some things to think about as we enter this holy season, this holy day season. Um, we do pray that you'd be blessed as you meditate on the life and death of Christ. Good night and God bless.